Hello, and thank you for joining today's call, the fourth in our Solutions 2020 series featuring candidates for president and other policymakers likely to shape the 2020 race. We're thrilled to have Tom Steyer with us today. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, and I'll be moderating our conversation. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Tom is a noted investor, philanthropist, and activist, simply one of the most successful business leaders in America. He's the founder of Fairlawn Capital, one of the country's most successful investment firms, and co-founder of One California Bank, a community development bank that serves underserved small and medium-sized businesses, nonprofits, affordable housing developers, community facilities, families, and individuals in the Northern California area. Tom stepped down as head of his investment firm in 2012 to dedicate all of his time to philanthropy and political action. In the recent midterms, Tom led the nation's largest grassroots voter, ter- grassroots voter turnout effort. He recently launched, launched Need to Impeach, which has recruited more than 6 million supporters. We've asked Tom to talk about the cost of the Trump administration's policies and President Trump's rhetoric on economic opportunity and America's economic competitiveness. We're leaving the bulk of our time for you to ask questions and make recommendations. For those of you who are new to our programming, Business Forward organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for more than 100,000 business leaders across the United States. More than 650 mayors, governors, members of Congress, and senior administration officials have participated in our programming, including two presidents, a vice president, and more than half of the 30 men and women likely to run for president. This is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's most respected companies. Before we get started, I need to cover a few housekeeping items. Uh, First, you can participate in two ways. You can email your question to us at info at businessfwd.org, and we'll read aloud. Please note the name of your business and where you live in your message. That's info at businessfwd.org. You can also press 1 on your dial pad at any time to be entered into the queue to ask your question live. We'll get to as many questions as we can. Uh, Finally, this call is on the record, and there may be reporters present. Uh, Tom, thank you for joining us uh, today. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, Jim. Um, I just want to emphasize at the outset that this is going to be mostly a conversation and questions and answers. I'm going to give a short, uh, try and answer Jim's question about the economic impact of the Trump administration and why impeachment uh, is called for. But mostly this is questions and answers. I want to do two quick corrections of his very generous introduction. One is the co-founder of our community bank and its co-CEO is my wife, Catherine Taylor. I want to make sure that she gets her share of the credit for that because she does way more than her share of the work. And uh, we did found it together, but she is the co-CEO and has been for 10 years um, and really has been the intellectual leader behind it. And the other truth is that Jim's numbers in terms of the need to impeach campaign are a little out of date. We have over 7.6 million people who've signed our petition, and we have 10,000 a day who sign it, who keep signing it. Um, I, I think you know that that has been running for almost a year and a half, um, and basically trying to remove the most corrupt, lawless, and dangerous president that this country has ever seen. Um, This isn't the point of this call, but just so you know, and I'll take questions on this if people are interested, um, we think that he has committed 10 um, impeachable offenses um, and that it's urgent to get him out of office. And what I'm going to talk about here is the economic case for that urgency. I'm going to put that in two categories. The first one is the urgency, the the impact of his economic uh, uh, 
of his policies on the long-term economy of the United States of America, and the second is the impact of his lawlessness on the long-term economics of the United States of America. So let's just start with his policies for a second. Um, I believe that Mr. Trump's policies are causing immense economic cost to America over the foreseeable future. And let's start for a second by talking about what makes a country rich over a long period of time. And my answer to that is its citizens, the human beings who live in the country and what they, are, what they do over a long period of time. And if you believe that, then you also have to believe that in order for them to succeed, the country itself, their community, their society has to invest in them. You have to make it possible for them to succeed and to thrive. It's not a quick fix. It's not a one-time tax cut. It's a long-term program to build human capability. And what does that mean? It, the obvious point of that would be a quality public education from pre-K through college with skills training. But it also means things that don't necessarily jump out, but I believe are rights. It is workers' rights and a living wage. It is comprehensive health care. It is clean air and clean water. It is a healthy, equal democracy. I believe if you have those things, people are able to contribute to the wider society. They have a real, everybody gets a shot at succeeding and flourishing. And it's important that as many people as possible get that shot. Everyone get that shot. That's how we all succeed. We all lift each other up. We lift the country up. And the, the government's job is to make that possible for every individual. But if you actually look at Mr. Trump's budget, if you look at his policies, he is attacking every single one of the measures that I outlined. He is cutting investment in the American people across the board. He is really, in my mind, assaulting the rights and the futures of Americans, really on behalf of what I see as a corporate-driven, very short-term uh, approach, which he believes will juice the economy while he's in office, but is devastating over the long term. And I think that it's based on an ideology that is, frankly, not just wrong-headed, but actually factually wrong. The idea is that a free market exists in nature, and that if we call it to our account, it will be effective and fair and moral, that taxes are by definition bad, that unions are by definition bad, and it's kind of an, a jungle-type mentality of, you know, every man and woman for themselves, you eat what you kill, you get what you deserve, and society really can't help you, and it really can't harm you. And I think that those are the ideas that originally come from Ronald Reagan. I think that Mr. Trump believes in them and, you know, at least he espouses them, but I think that they are essentially stripping the country I think they're, it's stripping Americans of their rights, and I really holding down the long-term future of the country and of the people who live in this country. But I think that if you look not just at our federal government, but you look at state governments, 
where this mentality has taken hold. They haven't. They always cut taxes. They always cut regulation on business and allow pollution. They always cut healthcare access. They always cut education. Um, they leave. They transfer power away from the people intentionally. They try to reduce and suppress our democracy. And if you look at those states, you can see that that over the long term or even the intermediate term can be completely devastating. And that's whether it's Kansas or South Carolina or Iowa, it doesn't matter what part of the country it's in, that is a formula for taking your growth and reducing it and really driving away the kind of self-sustaining um, business that I think America is not only capable of, that's our destiny, and is really the only way for a broadly prosperous nation to grow their economy. And that's from the bottom up, not the top down. This is about unlocking human capital to drive widespread prosperity. And I think I want to get into uh, a little more about which countries we're really talking about in a little while. But let me now take, so my first point is invest in people. Mr. Trump does the opposite. Second is climate change as an example of an economic policy that in the short run serves his political interest, but is disastrous for us economically. You have to start with the idea and the knowledge that this is very much an immediate crisis with a very short window to implement what's needed to avoid very bad outcomes. And that is, the correct framework for this, I believe, is that in order to, to avoid really disastrous outcomes, we actually need to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions by 10% a year every year between now and 2030. That is an incredibly tough task. It's a daunting task. But here's the good news. We have the technology to do this right now. We can actually do this, and we can do it in a way that will grow our economy create net millions of jobs, make job, pay, job uh, wages go up, make the country grow faster. It really is one of those things where we're in a position to do this in a way that doesn't, we're not asking ourselves, what are the costs? We're foregoing tons of benefits in order to, to risk immense pain for human beings. But if you look at what Mr. Trump is doing, he's doing the exact opposite, and we all know it. He's trying to lower car emission standards. He's trying to prop up coal. He's trying to lie about climate in order to serve the fossil fuel companies who are the, that is the by far largest corporate lobbying effort in the United States. In fact, as lobbyists, the oil and gas industry is bigger than the next three industries combined. They are the gorilla when it comes to corporate lobbying in the United States. But obviously, the, the more we avoid this problem, the harder it gets to solve. If we hadn't been lying about it for the last 10 years, we wouldn't have to do anything like what we have to do now. This is not a question about whether we have to make the investment. It's case of the investment. We know we have to make this investment. And the question is, the slower we do it, 
the more it's replacement capital instead of having to replace machinery and equipment that's not fully depreciated. So if we'd, start, if we, if we'd started it earlier, we'd never have to replace a machine that wasn't fully depreciated. The longer we wait, the more that we're making investments that cannot live out their natural life. And that is something that's extremely problematic for people. And lastly, before I get to the cost of his criminality, the, 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 the actions that actually directly warrant uh, impeachment, I just want to point out what's in the news today, which is the Federal Reserve reducing their projection for American growth in 2019 to 2.1%. This is a president who swore we're going to be growing at 5%, that 3% long-term was a minimum. And let me say, 2.1%, that's the new reforecast. That's with a gigantic deficit created by his tax cut for last year. And that is the first reforecast. My experience of reforecast is the first reforecast is very, very seldom the last reforecast. What we're seeing is the criticisms that he's made and the, the uh, steps that he's taken are not working, which is completely predictable. That is not a surprise. But let, we've been talking so far about policies, and you don't get impeached for policies. You get impeached for crimes and uh, breaking your word to the Constitution and the American people. And this is a guy who's corrupt. And that corruption is a contradiction to our system of government and to our way of life. Basically, if he can break the law, if he can cheat on his taxes with impunity, then why can't all of us? If he is allowed to cheat and rob, then why aren't all of us? So his actions and his behavior specifically, directly, and powerfully weakens the rule of law, and that presents very serious long-term economic risks. So I think you guys know that I spent, and I think Jim referred to it, over three decades as a professional investor. And I invested around the world. So I know what it means to invest in different economic and political and legal systems. And I can tell you that if you're a foreigner, it is really important when you're investing in a country that a contract is enforceable, that there is a level playing field, that the rule of law is respected. And why is that so important? Because inevitably something goes wrong. And when that happens, and you have a conflict, particularly if you have a conflict with someone from that country, can you get a fair break and have a contract, a legal contract enforced or not? And we all know that's true in some parts of the country, but not in every part of the country. And if you look at where investment dollars go, they overwhelmingly go to places where you can enforce a contract legally. Because otherwise, how are you going to enforce, what do you do when, when trouble hits? And I'll give you an example. I had a friend who invested and bought, a, shortly after the breakup of the Soviet Union, he bought a manufacturing plant in Russia. And he called me up one morning 
really, really early in California, but he lives in New York, and he said, the truckers have refused to deliver goods to my plant. They're striking for me for higher wages, and the plant manager has given me three options. We can pay them off, which will be ruinous for us competitively. We can have them beaten, or we can have them killed. What do you think I should do? Well, let's be clear. That is not the rule of law. And there are very few of us, and let me say I am not one of them, who is equipped to deal in that atmosphere. And in fact, my suggestion to him was sell the plant. But if you're the places around the world that boast long-term consistent growth and prosperity, let's list them. Canada, Sweden, Singapore, Chile, Japan, Germany. That's five continents. That is all different ethnicities and racial backgrounds. What is the consistency between those countries? They respect the rule of law and they invest in their citizens. Those are not countries with great natural resources. So if you look, let's contrast that with Mr. Trump's favorite country, Russia. The one thing people don't know about Russia, which is amazing, is that Mr. Putin and his former KGB cronies control 80% of the Russian economy. That is an amazing fact. He is as rich as Croesus. But you should also know how Russia's been doing. Terrible. You know, they have had, last year was the first time in eight years, seven years, that they've had over 2% growth. They were down 2.8% in 2015, down a quarter of a percent in 16, and up 1.5% in 17. They have had basically no growth. They have a GDP per capita that is $10,000, whereas we have $60,000. This is not a country that in any way, shape, or form, and specifically economically, we want to emulate. Think about other countries that have amazing natural resources. Venezuela has the third largest oil reserves in the world. How are they doing? Terrible. The rule of law is unbelievably important. Corruption is incredibly expensive. I think that the number that we have is that it caught corruption around the world costs $2.4 trillion. So when you look at where we are, we've always been in the front of the rule of law. And what Mr. Trump does by obstructing justice, by taking payments from foreign governments, from threatening the free press, he is basically pushing us to a systems crisis. Are we going to remain a country of laws and openness and transparency, or are we going to move closer to corruption and a rigged system and authoritarianism? This is an absolutely critical question for our economy as well as for our morality and our decency. See, and he's not just Mr. Trump. He's, he is the absolutely most blatant and worst proponent of this, but think about what happened. There are people carrying his water. 
Think about the Cohen hearing. We've had one public hearing about cor the Trump corruption. It was the House Oversight Committee with Mr. Michael Co with Michael Cohen. The Republicans never asked him a single question about the president breaking campaign finance laws. They didn't ask him a single question about corruption or any of his misdeeds. The only thing they did was try to impugn the witness. So what we're seeing in our politics is a willingness to give up on the rule of law and an acceptance of truth, which is a very scary thing in a society. But if you think about it, when you think about the norms of society and the laws of society in America today, systematically, categorically, intentionally suppress the vote. Yep, check. Lie about science for a decade, putting every single American citizen at risk. Check. Think about the refusal to consider Merrick Garland for the Supreme Court. What that says about a willingness to, to observe the, the norms of society, not the laws in this case, but the norms that people expect. This is having a rule of law where people behave correctly all the time, are expected to, and are punished if they don't. The, if we are unwilling to enforce our laws and our values, then they are not our laws and our values. And if you look around the world to the places that you would like to live, where people have a high income per person, where people live a long time and are happy in a society that makes sense and is sustainable in every fashion. There are places where people behave well and understand that they have to give into and aid society and in return society will invest and enable them. That's what we've done in the United States for over 200 years. If we move away from that, it is incredibly expensive from an economic standpoint. It's also incredibly expensive on a moral standpoint and on every kind of decency, what kind of people we want to be. But I came out here today to talk about economics, and I can tell you, as an investor, don't invest in a country where they can take away your money because, the because someone in power wants it. And, and you don't want to be in a place where, pe where it's not a level playing field in every sense of the word. So with that, I said I was going to be brief. I hope I wasn't too long, but I, I'm ready to take questions, Jim. Thank you very much, Tom. I appreciate it. Um, and and just, uh, regarding the rule of law, we uh, just did a survey of the business board membership uh, about rule of law. And one of the things that came back uh, uh, that was the strongest response was, uh, small business leaders see rule of law as uh, uh, leveling the playing field for them with larger companies. And so you talk about it from a foreign investment perspective. Most of the people on our network think about it in terms of protecting themselves from bigger companies. And it's I think both points are valid, and um, we're going to be doing more programming on that too. So, um, But Jim, uh, just so you know, I was making that point about foreign countries only so we could understand ourselves. My yeah. point on this is, we need the rule of law here 
so that, for instance, small businesses don't get automatically beaten up because more powerful, better connected businesses, which is what's been happening, can take advantage of them in the courts or by getting policies enacted through legislatures because they give money and own legislators. Um, we've got a number of, uh, we've, we've got uh, dozens of uh, questions uh, right here for you. I'd like to try to uh, put a couple together just to, so we can reach more people. Uh, uh, the first two relate to uh, the, the, the point we were just talking about, about America's global reputation. Uh, Paul Sawyer, Dallas, Texas asks, after uh, the trade war and agriculture were ruined, how does America get back into global markets? Um, Louise Noeth from uh, St. Peter's, Missouri asks, do you believe America's reputation has been badly damaged by the current administration's policies and general public comportment? So. Um, in, in terms of getting back into global markets, how do we do it and how long uh, could it take to, to get back? Okay, so I, I think that people around the world pay enormous attention to the United States. I mean, they really do. And I think there's going to be a question whenever a new administration comes in about the message they send because people are dying to believe that this is a blip, that this is... You know, we haven't turned our back on democracies, that we haven't turned our back on our trading partners, and that this is something which is an aberration and is not a long-term American attitude, which I firmly hope is true. Let me say this, however, in terms of foreign trade. I think we all know that, that international trade is something that lifts us all up. What we also should all realize as well is there are countries that cheat in international trade mostly about, in my opinion, internet, intellectual property, taking advantage, of, not opening up markets. There is cheating, and we should firmly and actively resist it. But I think we've taken a sledgehammer to it in a way that isn't smart and that is going to cost them. And so, yes, we will harm them, and we will harm ourselves at the same time. So I think what we really need to do is to be aware that there are people who cheat and be absolutely forceful in going after that cheating and trying to prevent it at all costs because it, it does exist and it is important and we need to stand up for Americans. But also being aware that in general, tariffs are something which have, you know, that is a very blunt instrument with incredibly painful consequences to American citizens, which we're seeing in the farm belt right now. And the, the last question about has he damaged our reputation abroad? Well, I don't think there's any question about that. I think that, you know, people had felt that Americans did the right thing. That's our reputation. We aren't always right, but we're always trying to be right. And I think sometimes people thought we were naive and we made mistakes, but I think they thought we were trying to do the right thing. And I think that's really important. My belief about how to be prosperous is cooperation. You know, my experience is cooperating is how people grow profits. It's how they grow societies. No one ever gets rid, rich in the middle of a fist fight. All you do is destroy things in a fight. And so for everybody who thinks, oh, you know, oh, great, we're going to beat the snot out of them and then we're going to be richer. It's sort of like every fight I've ever seen, people underestimate the cost. And you just have to look back historically. I think people thought the Civil War would be over in two weeks. 
People thought World War I would be over, in a, they were in a matter of weeks. Getting into fights is incredibly costly, and it is important for us to stand up for our rights, and there are people around the, the world who for sure want to take advantage of us economically as well as other ways. And we have to be strong and forceful about that. But we also have to be aware that the way that people prosper is by cooperating with each other, not by fighting with each other. Uh, Tom, we've got a number of questions about tax policy, uh, too, the, just to start with. Um, how do you feel about the wealth tax that Elizabeth Warren is proposing? That's from Robert Stein, New York, New York. And then Charles Blum from Sedona, Arizona asks, uh, would adoption of a consumption tax coupled with substantial personal income tax relief improve U.S. competitiveness in the domestic and global markets? Let me talk for one second about the wealth tax. Look, what we've seen is that for the last 40 years, the incredibly overwhelming, maybe even up to 100% of the increased productivity and the increased profitability of the American economy has gone to only the richest people in the United States, including me. And that's unprecedented. It, you know, it, it used to be that the split, the, the productivity gains in America used to be split, or at least since the Second World War, had been split 50-50 between working people and employers. Pretty damn close to 50-50, and it went 100-0. So that the people who were profiting from the bottom lines of corporations, whether they were in the C-suite or they were in some way, shape, or form connected with that, or owned companies, profited at the, you know, 100% of the profits of the U.S. So when you talk about a wealth tax, it doesn't mean that something that anyone did anything wrong. It's just the way the system got set up. And it's a question of saying we have not just an income inequality that is dangerous for society and unjust, but we have a wealth inequality that's multiples of that. And I'll give you one number to bring this home for me in in the top companies, top, you know, I think it was the Fortune 50 companies, the CEO in 1980 made 34 times the average worker. In 2017, it was 312 times the average worker. It's gone up almost 10x that relationship. So when I think about a wealth tax, it's a way to redress that without saying anybody did anything wrong. I, I think... You know, I'd propose a wealth tax as a way of saying there's something that's gone wrong in this society. I don't want to cast blame. It's nobody's fault. But giving up 1% of your wealth every year is giving up really part of your return. And it's a way of trying to figure out, without casting blame, to redress some of the inequality that's happened over the last four years where people have profited in a way that really, from a societal standpoint, is not right. So that's the first thing I'd say about the wealth tax. In terms of consumption taxes, you know, the, the whole point about tax is you tax what you don't want. And so if you're put on a consumption tax, you know, it's like a sales tax, I guess. And so you're, what you're saying to people is buy less, consume less. That will be a, a way for us to um, raise money. And... You know, we've never, they've done it in Europe for decades. They've had basically consumption taxes and they've had very slow growing economies. So from my standpoint, I can't give you a good answer on that. I think that, you know, I've never seen it as a way to 
you know, necessarily get the outcome you want. I suspect without seeing the numbers that a consumption tax would be regressive because people with lower incomes tend to use more of their incomes or all of their incomes on spending as opposed to saving and investing. So I'd want to get the facts on some of those things. But in general, my, if you, my sense of a healthy growing economy is one which has more people doing better. That, that seems to me to be the places where we've had the best growth in the United States and where people have had the best growth around the world. So I'd want to look at those numbers, but that would be my goal would to be to come up with taxes that make it possible for the most Americans to do the best because it seems to me that the power, the buying power of the middle class and the productivity of the middle class, hopefully as big as possible, is really what drives prosperity and justice in a society. We've got a, a number of questions about clean energy, and, and again, I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll batch a few. Um, uh, Sylvia Laho uh from Indianapolis, uh, Indiana asks, uh, please give us some examples of renewable energy and or clean mobility projects that you're investing in. Um, David Winkler, Broomfield, Colorado asks, what are the most exciting possibilities for economic development that are connected to addressing climate change? And um, Raina Handelman from Dallas, Texas asks, uh, what is your perspective on the government's role in developing and integrating new technologies, especially in renewable energy? Okay. So um, let me just uh, say that when I stopped working at Farallon Capital in 2012 and started doing this, people claimed that the reason I'd stopped and was doing this was so I could get rich on clean energy, which is amongst the most ridiculous things I've ever heard. But in order to blunt that criticism, I said I won't invest in clean energy personally. If, if I do, we'll put it in a foundation so that I can never get my, if it turns out to be a bonanza, it doesn't help me in any way, shape, or form. I can only give the money away anyway because I didn't want people to be saying that I was doing this, in, in, that I was pushing policies for my own personal bottom line sake. Um, I think when we look at the first question about what we're looking at, look, I think the way to think about from a policy standpoint what has to happen for us to have a sustainable energy system, I think the, the rules are clean up energy generation, electrify everything, become much more energy efficient. That's, all, that's kind of the mantra for everything. So when you think about clean energy projects, what we're going to see, I think, is that we're going to continue to see that renewables plus storage are going to be cheaper than natural gas or any fossil fuel. I know that's true in a lot of the United States right now. I know that natural gas plants can be peaker plants or baseload plants, but we are within three years of renewables plus storage killing all fossil fuels on a cost basis. And so I think that's one place it's going to happen. I will tell you one other story. My son test drove a Tesla this week, and he said, Dad, it's like taking off in a rocket ship. It's the most incredible ride I've ever had in my whole life. 
So I think that there, you know, when we look at what's going to happen in EVs versus internal combustion engines, people say the Tesla is more fun to drive than a Ferrari. So I think what we're going to see is tech, new technologies win. And I think that we're going to see uh, those projects win in the marketplace heads up on a cost and performance basis, and they're already there in many cases. But when you talk about a government's role, let me say there is no such thing as a free market. The most basic markets in the world, they all have rule in the world, they all have rules. They have a place where the market is. They have a time when the market opens. They have functioning, whether they're written down or not, all markets have rules. And so the government, there has to be a huge government role in transforming our energy system into a sustainable one. And I'll give you an example of how important I think this is. In World War II, FDR asked the big three auto companies what percentage of their production they were willing to dedicate to the war effort. I mean, we were way behind the Germans and Japanese in terms of tank production and airplane production and battleship production. And that's where our manufacturing capability was to a large extent. So we went and they said, you know, these are fully decent patriotic Americans. They knew we were at risk. They knew we'd been attacked. Everybody was all in. They came back and said 20%. We can dedicate 20% to the war effort. And FDR said, okay, I have a different number. It's 100%. You are not going to make any passenger cars or trucks for the duration of this war. That's how important it is for us to win. So when I think about government policy, when your back is to the wall, government policy, was it important in World War II that people had victory gardens and did all kinds of things on their own? Absolutely important. But ultimately, the the direction of society is in our elected leaders that is the will that is the implied will of the people of the United States of America and if we're going to make a major change that leadership has to come from the people of the United States through their elected leaders it's absolutely critical and so you know that's why this is really a political question um, is that you know, we need to do this as a society systemically and across the board. And I, the technology is here for us to do it in a way that will make us, look, we can have cleaner air so that people aren't sick. We can have cleaner water so people aren't sick. We can have more jobs and higher paying jobs if we do this. And we can lead the world and we can build gigantic industries. So I see this as, this is, people used to talk about what it costs us to do this. The only thing, that not doing this is going to cost us immensely, economically, but also from a health standpoint and from a disaster standpoint. So when I look at an economic development around climate, it's going to be, we are going to have to do this on a, across the board. And it, you know, it looks, you have to look at all the different industries whether it's electricity generation or transportation or manufacturing or agriculture and put them on a new basis and have, you know, metrics for what you're going to do. 
and make it happen. And, and we're not only going to have to do that, everyone around the world is going to have to do it. And so that means if we do it, we're the technology leaders. Since when does America pass on the development of the largest industry that we have to develop in the history of the world? How could that be smart? How could that be a smart economic move to let the Chinese dominate that industry from an economic standpoint? How, it, it's, it's, it's befuddling to think. The only answer to that is that corporate status quo fossil fuel companies are the largest corporate organization, political organizations in the country. And they are doubling down on fossil fuels going forward. And they have a wildly different impression of how the future is going to go. Uh, Tom, we've got a, a lot of questions on impeachment, uh, but they all follow a, a similar theme. Um, I'm going to read two of them. One is from Steve Larson, San Francisco, California. Uh, a lot of Republican senators share the same goals as you do in terms of fiscal policy and national security. What efforts are made to get Republican senators to understand their goals can never get accomplished with Trump as president? Uh, another question is from uh, Felicia Bruce from Fort Pierce, Florida. She asks, um, uh, impeaching D uh, the president without bipartisan support and substantial voter support would be worse than any other alternative. Uh, do you think your efforts are guaranteed a successful outcome? <laughs> well, the answer to both, I'm going to answer both together, and that's this. The only way that impeachment happens and the only way the impeachment an impeachment should happen is if the American people demand it. And the only way that's going to happen is if the information is presented directly to the American people. So that if we've had one public hearing in the last two plus years that had to do with corruption in this administration, one, that was Michael Cohen. That moved the impeachment number 6%. If you go back to the Nixon administration, they had tons of public hearings. Everyone got a chance to see the criminals in the Nixon administration and what they had to say and what was going on. In, on TV, just like Michael Cohen, 16 million people watch Michael Cohen. So the only way that this can be a bipartisan effort is if people on every party can see on TV for themselves who these people are, what they sound like, and what they've done. And if that happens, then all of our research and polling says that across the board, an overwhelming number of Americans will want this president to be impeached and removed from office. So that when you talk about divisiveness and separate, you know, the need for a bipartisan movement, what we need is bipartisan information. If you look at the way that information is spread in the United States of America, there's two systems. One of them is a Fox News, Breitbart, Daily Caller, Wall Street Journal system. And that's a pretty you know, self-contained unit. And the other is you know, what I consider the rest of the press, the, act, the, you know, the actual free press. And so... The point about public hearings is they're not mitigated by Fox News or by MSNBC. They're not, you get a chance to see Michael Cohen in the raw. You get a chance to see Paul Manafort in the raw. You get a chance to see Roger Stone 
in the rock. And Americans get to make up their minds themselves instead of having people spin it for them. And so when I think about coming together, what we need to do is we need to come together on the facts. We need to come together with the information, not presented on TV. You know, I, I'll tell you one story about this. I have a, uh, a friend who's in her mid-80s, who's a widow, four children in their 50s. Um, and she stopped me after church and said, um, Tom, do you have a second? And I said, sure. And she said, I'm not on speaking terms with my daughter. Do you think I should stop watching Fox News? And the point was, and I said, Georgia, you, if you only watch Fox News and she never watches Fox News, you have no shared facts. You have no shared vocabulary for discussing the, 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 the news of the day. You literally are, have two complete, you're living in separate worlds and everything you say is going to upset her and everything she says is going to upset you. Yes, you have to start watching other things as well as Fox News. If you need to watch Fox News, okay, but you've got to start watching other things or you have no ability to communicate with her and she's not going to, she's going to stay mad. And that's what I'd say to the American people. We need to have news given to us. Direct, you know, the people in D.C. want to bury the news. They don't think we can handle the truth. They really don't. They don't want to let the American people get the truth directly. They want to tell us what the truth is. And we're a grassroots organization. We're the big, we were the biggest grassroots organization in the country in 2018. We have 7.6 million people on our list. We want the people of America to get to make this decision. And in order to do it, they have to get the facts. And we don't want them to be buried in Washington, D.C. Um, thank you very much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Um, and uh, for those who uh, we didn't get to your questions, we'll, we'll do our best to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, send them to Tom's team and work with them and get, you, get, and get some answers. Um, uh, but, Tom, uh, thank you very much for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, and uh, for all of you on the call, we'll be uh, following up next week with uh, invitations to more briefings with presidential candidates. Uh, thank you for participating in Solutions 2020. Have a great day. Jim, thank you so much for having me and for everyone on the call. Thank you so much for putting up with my long-windedness. <laughs> Have a great day.